0: Seaweed is definitely gonna be part of the solution for Australia and globally, because we're talking about a habitat that dominates 25% of the planet. The exciting thing about it is that we know how to fix it. We have the tools, we we have the engineering know-how. It's just about doing it.
1: 100 Climate Conversations presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We're broadcasting today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo power station. Unique industrial features remain, including the imposing chimneys and the coal cart rail tracks that run underneath this stage. In the context of this architectural artefact, we shift our focus forward to the innovations of the net zero revolution. On behalf of the Powerhouse, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands on which the museums are situated. We respect their elders past, present and future and recognise their continuous connection to country. Uh, Welcome. My name is Paddy Manning. I would like to introduce our guest, Adriana Verges. FIGES is focused on the ecological impacts of climate change and the development of restoration solutions to rewild our coastlines. Adriana, you grew up in Spain. Can you tell us about the environment you grew up with and how you decided to become a marine ecologist?
0: Barcelona is along the shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea, so the kind of Mediterranean has been ever-present in my life. My mum is from an island, from Mallorca, so I would go there in the summer. So I feel like I grew up right on the water. The reason why I became a marine scientist, I, I think the main thing that attracted me to it was the, the mystery, the fact that we know so little about the, about the sea. It's often said that we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the deepest part of our ocean, and it's still true today. So that attracted me to it. The, the possibility of spending a lot of time next to the sea obviously was, was a, a bonus, but also the fact that it's, um, it's such a holistic kind of discipline. So when you study marine science, you do a little bit of, you know, physics and chemistry and biology. And to understand it, you need to kind of bring it all together. And that was really exciting to me because I didn't want to kind of focus too narrowly on anything. The oceans depend on the land and depend on the atmosphere. Everything is interconnected. And that's very much a feature of the degree itself. So that, that really attracted me to it.
1: We love our coast um, and our beaches in Australia. But I understand you came to Australia for a different reason. I've never heard it called the Mecca of Seaweed before.
0: <laughs> it is actually. Australia is the Mecca of seagrass and seaweed. Um, Australia has the largest number of seaweed species in the world. It is truly uh, amazing. And the first time that I went diving in Australia, I was blown away because, because of the diversity. Especially in Western Australia, it, it really is mind-boggling for a, for a scientist, of course.
1: And so you spend a bit of time here doing your PhD? Yeah,
0: so I started coming here during my PhD, six months every year, actually. Um, and, and I worked with a professor, his name is Peter Seinberg at UNSW, uh, who was a world leading seaweed scientist. And, and then I got hooked on, on Australia, fell in love with the place, as well as the, the seagrasses and the seaweeds.
1: How did climate come to be part of your focus as a scientist?
0: Yeah, I think as a marine ecologist is, you cannot not see climate change, you know. So for me, when I started my PhD, I was diving and setting up an experiment, and all of a sudden I realised that something very, very unique was happening. So the the seagrass that I was studying is a clonal plant. In the Mediterranean, it mostly reproduces by just adding shoots. But that year, there was a huge heat wave. What year is this? 2003. Yeah. All the meadows were flowering, all of them. So people, you know, I, most of the people I knew had never seen a seagrass flower in their lives, and all of a sudden it was full of it, and it was because of this heat wave. So I ended up kind of shifting my PhD and, and asking questions about, about flowers and blah, blah, blah. But I guess it's a good example of how, in marine science, we're stumbling across it. It's not something that is happening in the future. You know, even back in 2003, it, it was something that you see all the time. So. That's how I kind of started working on climate change, because it was unavoidable. And the changes are happening so much faster than on land. So, for example, we're seeing a lot of species shifting their distribution, going from the tropics to temperate coastlines. And that's something that if you go snorkeling here, you'll see. You go to the shallow water, and there's all these baby tropical fish. And some of them are now starting to stick around because it's warm enough for them to live here, you know, whereas before they would only have lived in the tropics. So it's something that is, is, is it's very obvious and it's happening right here, right now.
1: Did you find it exciting or terrifying or both?
0: The terrifying was always a bit of an abstract one. It's more like one of my PhD students was working on oceanographic models and looking at how we predict the temperature of the ocean is going to change and how that will affect the distribution of the main kelp species in Australia, when you look at the results and you realize that in my children's lifetime, that kelp species will no longer be in some of our preferred kind of beaches, like that, that that's certainly terrifying. However, I th- I'd say my most kind of terrifying kind of encounter or, or kind of shock with climate change is more from the extreme events. So, in the context of restoration, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, my personality is one where I focus on the solutions. I focus on on the amazing kind of ingenuity that humans have, and and how we actually already have the tools to reverse the problem. So that that's kind of the mindset that dominates my thinking. It's a it's a positive, can do, let's fix this, we can do it, kind of. But then when those extreme events come around, you know, like the fires or the floods or in one single event, you can wipe out the entire restoration that you've spent five years working on. Mm. And it's not that that work is in vain, because you know, as a scientist, we're developing new tools and new approaches to restoration. It really affects you in a very emotional way when you actually see it all gone. And it is a little bit harder to go, OK, let's start again. Because we know with climate change, those extreme events are going to become more and more and more frequent and common, and I think that's the bit that I, I struggle with the most on an emotional kind of
1: level. There's two particular terms that are important to your research, which I'd like to, to explain if you don't mind, um, and that will give, you know, the ordinary person an idea of what's going on underwater. Um, Tropicalisation. so I've heard uh, you say that scientists expect um, Sydney's waters will be um, tropical uh, by 2040 to 2060. What does that mean?
0: So, big Changes in the in the in the ecosystem in the habitat. So if you think of I don't know the difference between a rainforest and a savanna, you know, they're the kind of changes that we may see. We're going to see a disappearance or a decline of the kelp forests, and that's partly because these new tropical species that are coming in are overgrazing the seaweeds. So that's a big loss, and the kelp are actually they absorb a lot of carbon. Uh, so they they. Photosynthetic, extremely productive. So when you lose the Gulf Forest, you're also losing this kind of carbon capturing machine, which which is a problem and a, a feedback. We are already seeing corals expanding in Sydney, and you know some of the tropical fish are incredibly beautiful. So I often get asked, well, is that a bad thing? Because we're losing corals in, in the Great Barrier Reef. Isn't this like a bit of a refuge? And isn't there something positive that comes from it? And I guess nature will find its way. Species will Adapt in the best way they can, and and that means for a lot of them moving to places where the the temperatures are okay. However, it's not like we're going to get the Great Barrier Reef here in Sydney. The Great Barrier Reef has been accumulating over millennia, and you know things like say day day length and amount of sunshine that's never going to change, no matter how much warmer the water gets. So we're we're not going to get a proper functioning coral reef in Sydney. We will though more than likely we're already getting a lot more tropical species. And there will be winners and there will be losers.
1: Another term that comes up in your research is um, that species are migrating polewards. Yeah. Uh, so uh, does that mean every species on Earth is trying now to escape the equator, both on land, uh, in the sea? Yeah.
0: Yeah, so basically what we're seeing is that species, when it gets warmer, species either die if their physiological limits are surpassed um, they adapt, so they, they learn to live with the warmer temperatures, or they move to stay within their preferred temperature, and most species are doing that, they're moving. So that means in mountain ranges, they're moving to higher altitudes. In the ocean, some species are going deeper, but most species are moving towards the poles, and that's what we term yeah, tropicalization.
1: That's a problem for Tasmania, isn't it? Because species sort of have nowhere to go.
0: That's right, yeah. And that's a big difference with the Southern Hemisphere. Is that there's, no, there's no land continuity um, towards the pole, right? So whereas in the, in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, the kelp and the urchins, they, they keep going up, up, up towards the Arctic. But in, Tas- in Australia and Tasmania, it's like a cliff edge. There's nowhere else to go. So when we lose the species from these landmass, they're, they're gone for, forever.
1: We've talked a lot over decades in Australia about the fate of the Great Barrier Reef in terms of global warming. Mm. Can you tell us about the Great Southern Reef? And and I feel like that's a debate that hasn't really hit the surface yet.
0: So the Great Southern Reef is a, is a name that we actually created, some colleagues of mine created it to bring awareness to the main ecosystem that lines the southern half of Australia. So there's a single kelp species, it's the golden kelp, and it... It's like the biological engine of the entire southern half of the Australian continent. A single species dominates the entire ecosystem. This kelp, it it fuels the food webs, it captures the carbon, it provides the actual habitat for hundreds of species and it's where most Australians live. So 70% of us live right next to this great southern reef and yet most people don't know anything about it. So most people don't know that we are losing our kelp forest. So Everybody knows that, we're, that the coral reefs are bleaching and that that's, that's a problem. But very few people know that a very similar thing is happening to our seaweeds right here. And this great southern reef also has huge economic um, value. So the rock lobster and the abalone fishery alone, they're the most valuable fisheries in the whole of Australia. And they depend on the kelp forest. So for example, in Tasmania, We're seeing a very dramatic decline in the kelp forest, and that's already impacting the abalone fishery and the rock lobster fishery. So, and it's just incredibly beautiful and biodiverse. So when they disappear from here, they disappear from the planet. And we're talking about, you know, incredibly beautiful sea dragons and giant cuttlefish and like incredibly beautiful and special creatures that we don't know enough about. And we're losing this ecosystem before we even really get to understand it.
1: So that's the bad news. I understand that you went almost deliberately looking for a good news story that you could tell. um, And that's partly how you came to launch Operation Crayweed. Can you kind of join the dots for us there? Yeah.
0: I think as as academic marine ecologists, we spend a lot of time documenting declines, documenting how things are getting worse, documenting how we're losing species and biodiversity. I was on the lookout for something where we could actually go from documenting this decline to actually fixing the problem. So, about yet eleven years ago, when I started working at UNSW, I came across this phenomenon that my colleague, Melinda Coleman, had documented, whereby we had lost an entire forest of seaweeds, of this one species called crayweed, um, along the entire metropolitan coastline of Sydney. So if you go north of Palm Beach, it's everywhere. If you go south of Cronulla, it's everywhere. Uh, But in Sydney, it had completely disappeared. And it took 20 years for scientists to even document it, because often what's happening underwater is kind of out of sight, out of mind. But um, once we knew that, we had, that it had disappeared, we started thinking, okay, well, can we bring it back? It's, you know, what were the reasons for the disappearance and are the conditions now suitable to bring it back? And the, the reason for the disappearance is pollution. So water, um, like sewage treatment in Sydney before the 80s and 90s was a major problem. So a lot of the beaches that we now love were actually close to swimming because the sewage was disposed of directly onto the shoreline. So that pollution caused a lot of species to die out and disappear, and Crayweed was one of them. So Sydney Water installed deep ocean outfalls, massively improved, improved water quality in the 90s, and we thought, well, maybe now the water quality is good enough for these species. Obviously, it hasn't come back for a reason, we don't know why, but let's, let's do an experiment and see whether we can bring it back. And We also did a whole lot of studies to work out first of all, is this species really worth saving? Like, is it, is it really special? To the likes of me, every seaweed is special, but what does it do for the ecosystem, right? So we did a whole lot of biodiversity studies and we found that you can find 10 times more abalone next to crayweed than next to other kelp species. So there's a tight association with abalone, with rock lobster, and it also supports a unique kind of community of microscopic creatures, right? So we knew that it was special and it was worth trying to bring it back. We then did the experiments to try and see whether the water quality was good enough. And we found that, yes, not only was it good enough for it to survive, but it was also good enough for it to reproduce. So that's how Operation Craybeads started. And from the beginning, we wanted to have a very active science communication side of the story because we thought, look, if we can actually kind of reverse local extinction and bring these species back, this is an encouraging kind of story that we can use to raise awareness about the importance of seaweed forests in general, but also how we can use science to come up with solutions. So that's one of the main projects that I've been working on for the last, yeah, 10, 11 years.
1: Well, we went snorkelling yesterday at your very first plot. Uh, Thank you for taking me out when I can keep up with you. What I saw was, uh, so we were out at Malabar yesterday, thankfully it wasn't raining, and that was your first plot, I think, in 2011, right? And um, 20 square metres only that you planted. Yeah. What I saw, as again as a layperson, was a pretty degraded kind of um, sea bed with you some, as you, as you explained, some um, urchin barrens and some bleached seaweed. I mean, to be honest, I didn't know that seaweed bleached. I found out yesterday from you. And then you took me to some quite miraculous little clumps of healthy-looking crayweed, uh, which, of course, I've probably swum over a number of times but never noticed. Uh, mature and what I saw in the clippings are referred to as crabies, the little baby crayweeds. And they had a really firm grip on the, you know, on the rock that they, you know, were um, growing out of. You were explaining there were hundreds... You know, your crayweeds have propagated now hundreds... What, they're in their third generation, so they live three to eight years, and they've propagated hundreds of metres from where you started. Um, and there's almost no trace of what I... All you could show me was a couple of old cable ties and former drill holes. So uh, it seems... It was very inspiring. What made you happiest to see yesterday?
0: So what I love about... Going back to those sites is to see how how nature finds its own way. So you give it a little helping hand and it just takes off. And you know, we, we do our planting of crayweed at about three meters just because that's where we can actually work on scuba. But the natural habitat of the crayweed is more like on the um, where the waves are breaking. So what makes me really, really happy is when when I see that kind of little kind of fringe starting to be populated with greyweed everywhere. And that's starting to happen now along hundreds of meters, which is really exciting. And that's where the abalone leaves and that's, that's the right habitat. So we planted three meters and then it finds its way to the right habitat over the lifespan.
1: So you had, as I understand it, there was plenty of trial and error. You had plenty of challenges to anchor the crayweeds to bare rocks underwater artificially. Um, Had it ever been done before? What gave you the idea? No. Um, Did you just pop up? To Bunnings and say, Oh, look, I, I need to hanker some, plant some seaweed underwater. I mean, what did you do? We,
0: we do spend a lot of time in Bunnings yeah. <laughs> looking at all different types of drills and drill bits and underwater yeah. drills. Mm-hmm. Underwater drills, yeah. yeah. So, underwater hammer drills, battery operated. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. We also have like power power drills that are connected to a tank, but that's just a lot more cumbersome. So the technology is getting better and better. Uh, but yeah, it was a lot of trial and error. The thing about Greyweed is because it lives in these rocks and where the waves kind of it's it's you know by its nature it's actually a, a tricky environment to work in. And we tried on a lot of biodegradable materials. We didn't want to use plastic if possible, but we found that nothing else worked. So now we do kind of put in this kind of plastic meshes which we drill to the seafloor and they stay in for a couple of years while the craving takes off and then we start removing them so and the the idea is that we leave nothing behind like you saw but yeah a lot of trial and error and time on the water and Yes, it is the most successful restoration project in Australia for seaweeds. There's not a lot of seaweed restoration happening globally. We're, we're ahead on land and in salt marshes and mangroves, but seaweed restoration is only now starting to really take off.
1: That brings me to Operation Posidonia, your next project. So if you could explain, uh, you moved from crayweed to seagrass. Can you explain why you uh, launched... Operation Posidonia, what, you know, what it is, but also what happened.
0: Seagrasses are, are incredibly important for capturing carbon. They can be 10 to 30 times more effective at c- capturing carbon than terrestrial forests. And they also support biodiversity and fisheries. are incredibly important ecosystems. Seagrasses are different to seaweeds. So seaweeds are much more simple organisms, right? Seagrasses are actually terrestrial plants that have evolved to live on the water afterwards right and in australia they mostly live in estuaries which is also where humans like to settle so over the last kind of few hundred years we have lost a third of the world's seagrasses globally right so it's a, it's an ecosystem that is declining very fast and in particular there's one species posidonia australis that is declining so fast near Sydney that is now officially declared as endangered and, you know, it's listed as an endangered ecological community by the Commonwealth and the States. So I started thinking about, well, is there, is there any way that we can start restoring this ecosystem? And the thing about seagrass is that there's actually not enough of it to, to do restoration like we do with greyweed. So with greyweed, we just go to nearby places, north of Palm Beach or south of Cranola. We get enough few individuals from there, and we use them to seed the next population, right? And it grows really fast. With seagrass, it's a much, much more slowly growing species, and there's no, not enough of it to take it from here and put it there. So if we take it from the, here, this is a declining meadow that it's on the verge of extinction itself, so we, we just can't. So we developed a new approach, which was using the seagrass fragments that become naturally detached during storms. And that's a completely natural phenomenon that will always happen. Um, but we started seeing them going, actually, can we use those shoots? And 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 can they're they still eat? alive? They're still They've alive. They've washed up
1: on the beach. That's
0: it, they're still green. Wonder, could we use them for, for, for the restoration? So we started doing a pilot in Port Stevens and we put some collection stations. It worked incredibly well. So the, the community up there collected more than thousand five hundred shoots in just over a year. And that's people that go for a walk with their dog, or people that care about plastic and they do plastic collection. So at the same time you can collect these seagrass shoots put them in a station, once we have enough of them, we do the planting. And we've been getting incredibly good survival. So over 70% of the shoots end up surviving. And that's again, like the beginning of the, of, of the new kind of generation, if you like.
1: You were targeting mooring scars. So that was, I mean, I've spent a bit of time on boats and, um I understand how the moorings work, but I was actually just doing the research for this, I was shocked to find that there are these horrible scars yeah. where they've ripped up the seaweed just, I suppose, the chain as the boat moves around.
0: That's it, yeah. So 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 swing moorings, traditional moorings, have this heavy kind of weight and then a chain that attaches to the boat. And with the movement of the tide and the wind, the, the chain kind of drags along the seafloor and just destroys, rips everything out. And those holes just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, those mooring kind of and there's so many boats in New in South Wales, in estuaries, that that's actually become a massive problem. It's now one of the main reasons for the decline of seagrasses. And the thing about it is, this is an easy problem to fix, right? So you get rid of the chain and you put a synthetic material that is neutrally buoyant and doesn't drag along the seafloor. And you know these kind of environmentally friendly moorings, we call them, yeah. there's lots of different designs. They're being used effectively in many parts of the world we need to bring them to New South Wales. And if we do that, and then we combine it with restoration, we can get our seagrasses back. So that's what Operation Posidonia is trying to do. And again, the exciting thing about it is that we know how to fix it. We have the tools, we we have the engineering know-how. It's just about doing it now.
1: What does it mean for for ecologists now, like yourself, marine ecologists? Do you now have to kind of do a kind of triage and work out? Okay, which we we think there are going to be winners and losers from um, climate change amongst the species. Which which species do we help? Which do we give up on?
0: Yeah.
1: Um. And how do you make those decisions?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a really really big issue that we're going to encounter more and more and more. I mean, Australia is already making a decision that it wants to save its coral reefs. So the federal government is investing a lot in in saving the Great Barrier Reef. Arguably, unless we source the main reason for the decline, that's gonna be futile. But um, yeah, I mean, are corals more worthy of of saving, of using assisted evolution to produce super corals that are warm adapted Like, are they more worthy of it than say the, the giant kelp forest of Tasmania? How do we make these decisions? And I think that's why we kind of need to, it's, it's not an ecologist's job, right? We need philosophers and ethicists and just general, you know, the general public to know enough about it so we can make a collective decision. If people don't even know what the issues are, how can they have an opinion, right?
1: There's a kind of um, selective breeding aspect in a way to Operation Crayweed, isn't there, in that you are kind of deliberately replanting, as I understand it, crayweed that is more heat resistant. Can you explain? Yeah.
0: yeah, so, I mean, we haven't started doing that yet, but we have, what we have done is, we have done kind of scientific studies to look at the genetic makeup of crayweed along in its entire distribution. And start. You know, we wanted to know, are, are there any particular forests of crayweed where there's evidence that they're more heat tolerant? And so far, what we've seen is that at the northern edge of the distribution in Port Macquarie, the, the crayweed there is, is existing in warmer temperatures and it has a different genetic makeup. First, we need to demonstrate that they can put up with warmer temperatures better. And then if, if so, we'll start investigating the possibility of introducing some of those warm adapted individuals into the populations of Sydney to kind of future-proof that restoration and get them ready for the warmer waters that we know are unavoidable. Even in the best case scenario, if we meet the Paris Agreement, there's a certain amount of warming that is, is is going to happen for for definite. So can we do something to help species um, prepare and adapt to those warmer conditions? Obviously, to tackle the climate crisis, we need to stop you know CO2 emissions. We need to, as a planet, change the way we do things, right? And that that you know, without doing that, there's there's no future for us. The thing about restoration is that it's not just about restoring habitats that are now absorbing carbon, it's also about restoring biodiversity, it's also about restoring you know, our own connection with nature. So there's all these co-benefits to restoration that are, that are huge.
1: Adriana, thank you. Can I ask for a round of applause for Adriana Vegas? visit the 100 Climate Conversations Exhibition or join us for a live recording, go to 100climateconversations.com. This is a significant new project for the museum and records of our conversations will form a new climate change archive preserved for future generations in the powerhouse collection of over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time.